Today's episode of 83 Weeks is brought to you by our friends at HideFromRent.com. After all these payments, what have you got to show for it? Stop renting. Get out of the lease life. Isn't it time you had a garage, a backyard, a house of your own? How many super wealthy renters do you know? Home ownership is the American dream, and we can make it happen for you with no money down. You couldn't even go get an apartment that cheap. You'd have to pay your first month's rent, your last month's rent, and a security deposit. But we can hook you up right now. We make it fast and easy. You don't need perfect credit. You don't need money out of your pocket. I'm talking about zero dollars out of pocket. And how about your next house payment? It's going to be roughly what you've been paying in rent. If it doesn't cost more to own, why wouldn't you? Make it happen even if you've got credit scores in the 500s. You heard me. You don't need perfect credit. Go check it out for yourself. We've helped tons of 83 Weeks listeners, and we can help you too. And by the way, it's with me, Conrad Thompson. Check it out. Hidefromrent.com. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff. Eric, what's going on, man? How are you? Well, I'm doing great. I feel like I'm in the middle of a goddamn forest fire here. I'm just surrounded by salacious fires in California, Utah, Montana, Colorado, and all of that smoke is settling right into Cody, Wyoming. So I woke up this morning feeling like like I was out in the middle of the woods in the middle of a forest fire. It was brutal. But uh, other than that, I'm doing great. It's a beautiful Sunday afternoon. Well, I'm glad you're with us, and uh, hopefully everybody is safe and everybody's doing okay. Uh, man, there's just uh, a lot of weird stuff going on, but nothing weirder than when the Macho Man himself came. Oh, yeah, brother. How's that? I think everybody has a Macho Man impression, do they not? Oh, God, it is the easiest impression in the world to do. Why do Anybody you... could do a Macho Man impression. Why do you think that is? Why do you think he's um, the one everybody sort of gravitates to? Well, I mean, it's an easy impression to do. Easy impression to do. I got to do is growl. Right. Get your lips together, brother, and kind of growl from the back of your voice. Kind of drag out your bowels, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's just an easy one to do. But, and and I, can't, I can't do impressions, and I can do a decent Randy. Well, you don't have to do impressions to know that it's never been easier to enjoy WWE SummerSlam on the WWE Network. In case you didn't already know, and of course you do, if you're listening to this, when you sign up for the WWE network, you can stream every pay-per-view live. There's more than 10,000 hours of content on demand there. And a lot of the stuff we cover here on the show, it is the perfect companion piece for what we're doing here on 83 weeks. They've got stuff like groundbreaking original series and documentaries, but you can also access this content from anywhere. I've got it on my phones, my iPads, even the Apple TVs, but you can do this on tablets, computers, game consoles, everywhere. And now through August 20th, we have a special offer for you to sign up just in time for SummerSlam. Now our new subscribers to the WWE network can get a two month trial when they sign up at the WWE network website. It's wwnetwork.com forward slash 83 weeks. Check that out, guys. We've got a forward slash on wwnetwork.com. It's wwnetwork.com slash 83 weeks. And you don't want to miss this coming weekend. SummerSlam this Sunday, the biggest event of the summer in the entire WWE universe. Brock Lesnar is going to be defending his universal championship against Roman Reigns. 
lots of rumor and innuendo around that one. We've also got Alexa Bliss taking on the baddest woman on the planet, Ronda Rousey. Braun Strowman is going to put his money in the bait case on the line in a rematch against Kevin Owens. Dolph Ziggler and Seth Rollins are going to battle in a highly anticipated rematch for the Intercontinental Championship. They have really made that belt mean a lot lately. And we've got the SmackDown Women's Champion, Carmella. And she's in a three-way with Becky Lynch and Charlotte Flair and... I don't know. Something might be brewing there. The phenomenal one, AJ Styles, is going to collide with Samoa Joe. And you get all of this when you sign up for the WWE Network. Don't get me started on Hell in a Cell. The Super Showdown coming on October 6th for Melbourne. This is the, the way to enjoy WWE is the WWE Network, right? Not only that. and I mean, there is a lot of great stuff coming out. And just listening to you go through it you know, makes my head spin. There is so much great content coming up on the network. But when you think about it, you know, for $9.99 a month, you get access to all the pay-per-views. You get all of the vault. And I dig the vault. I mean, I spend a lot of time there now, you know, in the vault because of what we're doing here. And for those of you listening on, you know, here on, on our podcast, those of you that follow me over at twitch.tv forward slash 83 weeks, those of you that follow us over on patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks know that we do a lot of watch-alongs. And it's so cool to be able to sit there and watch along. You just go to the vault. We tell our, our followers, our fans, which show we're going to watch. We kind of give them a countdown. Three, two, one, hit the play button. And we're all sitting there watching the same thing together and, and chatting about it, you know, and, and interacting about it. And it's such a great, great resource for people that love not only what's coming up, the new stuff, and so much great great material coming your way but also you know to go back and look at the old nitros the old was the old wwe wwf pay-per-views in addition to all the specials so i i really and for the money it's really it's an incredible bargain and i really hope you know our fans conrad yours and mine here on 83 weeks let's make a hell of an impression over at wwe i mean i want to hear i want to get a phone call from somebody over at WWE saying, Jesus Christ, I can't believe how many 83 Weeks podcast fans are signing up for the network. You guys are kicking it. So let's do that. Let's let's make our presence felt. Absolutely. You know, we get lots of requests. Hey, uh, Bruce has got a show. When is Bischoff getting a show? Well, let your voice be heard, man. Go to WWNetwork.com and sign up. It's WWNetwork.com forward slash 83 weeks. You get a two-month free trial. Why wouldn't you do this? Did you hear the part where we said it was free? Do us a favor. Sign up. It's free. WWNetwork.com forward slash 83 weeks. Now let's get back to the macho man, Randy Savage. And man, let's sort of start at the beginning. You know, I mean, I got to tell you, I grew up a huge Macho Man fan. I first I was introduced to his character at WrestleMania four. I saw the double tape VHS and I was a wrestling fan right after that. I was hooked in and ready to go. And he was sort of, uh, you know, I guess the number two star in all of wrestling. Tell me about the first time you met Randy and what your perception of him was before you guys actually started working together. My perception of Randy, um, I mean, clearly I put him, you know, in that, that top category in WWF at that time. Uh, you know, you, you refer to him as number two. I think everybody looked at Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, you know, interchangeably to a degree. Hulk, Hulk being kind of the icon of the hood ornament of WWF back in the 80s, early 90s. But Randy was right up there. Uh, I didn't, you know, 
before coming to, to WCW, truth be known, I didn't watch a lot of WWF content. I'm, I was certainly aware of them, and I did watch it occasionally. But I, because of, you know, my, I guess my age or, 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 or the way I grew up as a wrestling fan, I was still kind of, I favored, you know, the AWA. I favored my local promotion more than I did the WWF. And in large part because I was just more familiar with the local characters that I grew up watching in AWA. So I didn't really gravitate, you know, when, when WWF was really making their move in the mid eighties and late eighties, I didn't like immediately jump on the WWF bandwagon. So truth be told, although I was really aware of Randy, you know, as a wrestling fan, even a peripheral one for WWF, um, you'd have to be blind not to have been, but I, you know, I didn't follow him closely. I just knew he was one of the big stars and I didn't think about him too much until, um, actually about a year before we hired him and Bob do who was my counterpart and you know, he wasn't my boss, but he and I both reported to Bill Shaw. Uh, Bob was in charge of the Omni. He was in charge of arena events. He was in charge of licensing and merchandising, uh, marketing, that type of thing. I was in charge of the television side of the business. Um, but we were both kind of equal. And Bob Dew and myself and Bill Shaw, the three of us, went to an event, a WWF event in Phoenix. Now, Bob and Bill both loved to play golf. They were like – you know, avid golfers. They love to play golf. I, I didn't play golf. I, I, I drove the cart, mixed the drinks. That was it. But we went to Phoenix so they could play golf. And it was a WWF event there that particular at that particular time. And Bob and I and, and Bill decided to go check it out. Because, you know, at that time, WCW live events were just in a fucking tank and nobody could figure it out. It was like this, you know the holy grail to be able to you know, draw two or 3,000 people that would actually buy a ticket. So we, go, we thought, well, let's go see how they do it. It was a house show. It wasn't a televised event. So we went, we sat up in the cheap seats, and when Randy came out, and that was the first time I'd seen Randy live. That's the important part of the story. When Randy came out, the crowd just went nuts. And I, I, you know, I don't remember who else was on the card, but I do remember Randy and it was just amazing to me that six or eight months later, you know, I'm talking to him because, you know, Vince McMahon evidently wanted to retire him from the ring and didn't want him to wrestle anymore. So that's a very long winded first perception of Randy Savage. So when you're, uh, when you're checking Randy out, I mean, at that point, do you sort of have an idea that, Hey, this is, this is what I want to do. Um, I mean, did you know right then, this is a guy that I wanted or. No, no, there was no way I could have, you know, foreseen the future. I didn't know. Uh, I couldn't have imagined that he would be available to me, you know, where I was sitting. And again, you have to kind of put it in, in the right time frame. I want to say context, but I, I overused that. Although that context is king. Shirt is selling like hotcakes. You know, I spent three hours on the phone yesterday calling people back um, that have bought t-shirts over to ericbischoff.com and they love the context is king shirt. So I'm going to use it again anyway. Fuck it. Um, in the context of when I saw Randy, um, uh, we had no, there was no plan or aspiration or even wishful thinking 
that we would be able to bring in a Hulk Hogan or a Randy Savage. We certainly didn't know that Hulk would have been available or that Randy would have come available. You know, all we were trying to do was stop the bleeding at that time. Uh, we weren't thinking in any way, shape, or form of talent acquisition, and we wouldn't have known that those guys, you know, six or eight months or a year later would be available. Before we talk about the actual conversation you have with him, I'm fascinated by the idea of you and, and, and Shaw and Bob do and everybody going to a house show. How often did you guys do this? Was this a one-off? Did it ever happen again? It was a one-off. And, and again, I, you know, I love Bill Shaw and have a ton of respect for him. He's a really, really good man. And he was a great executive at Turner Broadcasting, one of the best. Um, but I will say it was a boondoggle. These guys said, hey, let's go. We, we, the three of us need to get together off-site, which is you know, code for let's get the fuck out of town and go somewhere with a good golf course. And let's go somewhere off-site and, and really have a skull session and talk about what we want to do with WCW. And just coincidentally, that off-site, and I think it was like in January or December – Happened to be at Phoenix at one of the, you know, we happened to stay at the Biltmore, which is a, happens to be on one of the best golf courses in Phoenix. Uh, just all coincidental, I'm sure. I didn't have anything to do with it. I just went along. Um, but the idea was, while we're there, let's check out a WWE house show because there's one in town. So it was more coincidental than anything else. Well, so there you go. Um, let's talk about the first time you actually have a conversation with Randy. I mean, up until this point, you probably have never spoken to him before you were actually going to do business with him. Is that fair to say? Oh yeah. No, it's hundred percent accurate. So many months later, give me the timeline because I think Hulk Hogan gets the credit for making the introduction. Is that right? Yeah. I, you know, and it's funny. Um, you know, we're, we're looking back now, 20, 25 years at this point. 23, 24 years. And so much of this stuff, we've talked about this before. Um, you know, when I think back of all the things that I've been involved with, things that I've done, things that have been done to me, things that, have, that I've been a part of, good, bad, and ugly. You know, over the course of 25 or, th or really for me, going back 30 years, starting in the AWA, all of it kind of just runs together. Right. So it, it, it's like a movie that replays, you know, kind of on a fast forward, but all the scenes are out of sequence because you remember those moments and you, and you remember incidents, but it's sometimes difficult to remember them within a time frame or within the context of other things that were going on. But there's also certain moments that you remember, like, you know, do you remember, you know, I remember where I was standing and this is going to sound like random and obscure. But I remember when I was a kid, I remember exactly where I was standing when I heard that John F. Kennedy was assassinated. And, and I remember that moment vividly to this day. And there are other moments like that in my life. And I remember exactly where I was when I got a phone call from Hulk Hogan. <coughs> and it was probably in August or September of uh, 94. I was walking through the airport in Detroit. I was connecting onto a, another flight. Uh, I think I was either coming back from a show or I was on business doing something. But I was in Detroit, and I had like a two-hour layover. And I got a phone call from Hulk. He said, what do you think of Randy Savage? I said, well, he's a hell of a performer. He said, would you want to talk to him? I said, well, sure. He said, here, hold on. <laughs> 
whoa, I thought he meant, do you want me to set you up with a phone call or right. introduce you or do you want his phone number? Hey, brother. <laughs> I go, whoa, fuck. I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> but, hey, Randy, how are you? <laughs> Good to talk to you. And it was really, it was a short conversation because we, neither he nor I. No, Randy was, you know, if you know, you, you know of Randy. I, did you ever meet Randy, Conrad? No, I did not. Well, Randy could be, I hate to use the word paranoid because it kind of overstates it, but he was very, very careful particularly with people that he didn't know or even people that he knew but didn't quite trust. And, and I don't blame him for that, you know, especially you know, the wrestling business kind of creates that character trait. But so Randy was very friendly, but I knew you know, we weren't going to get into a conversation about coming over. It was just, hey, are you good to talk to you? You're in good things, brother, you know, that kind of thing. L- letting me know that he'd be interested if I was is really the, the tone of the conversation. Sure. And then uh, Hulk got back on, and we talked a little bit. And he said, "You want to, you want to follow this up?" I said, "Absolutely, absolutely." I'm on my way home. Give him my number, and and that's how that started. So you guys started dialogue, and you know you've written a, a lot about this and talked about this a lot before. You know, Savage is saying that he's not very happy with what he's doing, and he wasn't ready to sort of hang up the tights and put on a suit. And he hears that that's really the plan. I think McMahon had a meeting with him and said, you know, I'm, I'm making a switch. I'm going to the youth movement, which is sort of the same thing he said to flair a couple of years prior that brought flair back to WCW. What did Randy express about all of that to you? And I guess we should, we should mention that when, when Vince tells him this, Randy, I believe is 42 years old. And I know sometimes people say, oh, well, that's old. AJ Styles is 41 age is a weird thing. I just wanted to put all that in context. So what did Randy express to you about his situation with McMahon and and what he hoped to do differently with you? If there was an opportunity, I mean, he was hot about it. He, he, I mean, he was, he was very clear that he he didn't see himself as a color commentator. He was insulted quite frankly. And look, Randy was an athlete long before he got into professional wrestling. You know, we, we talk, you know, sometimes we joke about it. Sometimes we talk in depth about it. But, you know, the one thing that I think everybody that knew, worked with, was any way associated with Randy would agree upon. Um, if you could only pick one word to describe Randy Savage, what would it be? And I would bet you 80% of the people would agree on intense. He was just such an intense. And I don't, I mean, it, with himself, he, he, he was competitive with himself. Um he, he kept raising the bar for himself in every possible way that, that he could think of. Um, so when he got the word, and this is the way he articulated it to me. All right. Obviously, I wasn't there. I'm not that rumor and innuendo guy. I don't repeat second and third hand shit. But as it was articulated to me, um, he was pissed off about it. He didn't like being in the booth. He thought he had at least five or ten years left in him. And he believed in himself. He believed that he could still draw major money. And he wasn't shy about saying it. He, he had a lot of confidence. So um, when and he, and he told me that Vince told him that, you know, he's, he's putting him out to pasture. He's going to put him behind the booth. And just snapped, you know, when Randy Savage looked at himself in the mirror at 42 years old, um, 
And the, the, those of us who have passed that mark, you know, realize that, you know, as you get older, you, yeah, you, your driver's license says you're 42 or you're 52 or in my case, 62. And you, you know that, yeah, you can, you can add, you can, you can do the math, but when you look in the mirror, you don't feel that, you know, at least I don't, most people don't, you know, and I'm sure when Randy Savage giving his intensity and the level of competitiveness that was just part of his DNA, when Randy Savage looked in the mirror at 42 years old and Vince McMahon was telling him he was too old to work, you know, that didn't go over well at all. He was hot about it. And you were what? A few years younger than him at the time? Oh, uh, this would have been 94. So yeah, I would have been 40 probably. So you're having a conversation about him wrestling. What does that conversation sound like? Are you guys talking about, you know, the number of dates and, uh, you know, the particulars about the financial end, or is it more about, you know, what would you do with me, brother? No, he, you know, Randy, we talked a little bit about this on, um, Patreon yesterday, cause I got a couple of really good questions from some of our patrons over there about Randy and. Randy could be really difficult and challenging because he was intense and because he was borderline paranoid, you know, if not probably clinically paranoid in some cases. Uh, and that made it really hard until you, until he trusted you. Now, later on in our relationship, I had no problems with Randy. Randy was one of the easiest, you know, major talents um, there was for me to work with. I mean, we trusted each other. Completely. He, he didn't doubt me. But in the beginning, I didn't I didn't have that relationship. So it, it was a little more challenging. But when it came to um, he didn't have the dates issue, you know, he wanted to know he was aware, you know, but he knew we were only doing 180 dates a year. You know, he at the time he came in, we probably weren't even doing that. Because right. we had cut, we had cut the guts out of the house show schedule because they were losing money so badly, it didn't make any sense to do any more than you know necessary. So you know he he, he wasn't concerned about you know being on the road 325 days a year. In fact, he probably would have enjoyed that more, quite honestly, at the time. Um, he he was like Hulk and others who came in from WWF. You know they they looked at WCW as weak when it came to creative. WCW did not have a reputation for having, you know, a great idea of how to use a lot of people. So he was a little concerned about that, uh, more than a little concerned. And we did talk about that issue. And he, he was concerned about how he was going to be used. But he also knew that Hulk was there. Hulk and Randy were tight. Hulk was the reason that Randy got his foot in the door. Not that he, you know, if Randy would have called me on his own, he would have got there too. Sure. But the fact is, you know. Hulk and Randy had a history, a rocky one sometimes, but they had a history. And at that precise moment, you know, they had a good relationship. And I think Hulk was excited about Randy being there because Hulk knew that that was someone that, you know, he could draw money with. Randy was excited because Randy knew he could draw money with Hulk or believed he could. So I think Randy coming over knew that he was going to be at the top of the food chain, creatively speaking. Uh, right off the bat. So that wasn't too big of an issue. Most of it was just, he wanted assurances that he was going to be featured. Um, he was going to end up the same way he was ending up in WWF being put out to pasture. I think he was concerned a little bit about the longevity of his deal. He didn't want to come in and just hot shot it and, you know, be shown the door. Those were some of the issues, but honestly, uh, 
looking back at it, I, I think it was probably one of the easier deals. I, in fact, I know it was for a lot of other reasons, namely Slim Jim. But it was one of the easier deals I've ever put together, his first one. Well, we'll talk about uh, Slim Jim in a minute, but let's talk about the Hulk Hogan thing. Because I think, and you sort of alluded to it there, a, a lot of fans know that there's been a rocky relationship. And sometimes it was you know, storyline and they didn't get along on camera, but a lot of times they had issues behind the scenes. Had Hogan expressed any of that to you prior to you having the conversation? And did it come up in your conversation with macho? Did he need any sort of reassurances about your relationship with Hogan or how that may affect him? No, I knew, you know, because by, by the time, you know, Randy made it in, I had gotten to know Hulk pretty well and had spent some time with him not only working, but, you know, had gone down to Florida and, you know, in an effort to kind of get to know him and, and, and build a better relationship with one of our top stars, um, we got into more social kind of conversations uh, as opposed to just pure business. And, you know, he, he would tell me stories. You know, Hulk is a great storyteller. Um, I wish we could get him to do a podcast for this at least once a month because he's a phenomenal storyteller with great recall when it comes to wrestling events when it comes to what he did yesterday um forget about it but when, when it's wrestling and he's got a phenomenal recall much like bruce pritchard in a way um but you know randy or hulk would tell me you know about some of the crazy shit you know that he and randy went through and he walked me through a lot of the ups and the downs and the the jealousy with liz and all of the drama and you know liz and you know terry's ex-wife linda and I mean, I, yeah, I heard it all before I met Randy. Ironically, or interestingly, when Randy came in, he didn't have a bad word to say about it. He didn't imply, he didn't suggest, he didn't, he didn't show his cards in any way, shape, or form with regard to having any concern about you know, working with Hulk or their, their previous relationship. He was, he was a real pro about that. Is it fair to say that the bulk of the issues between Hogan and Randy – in one way or another involved Elizabeth? You know, I think Elizabeth, again, now this is just me as a fan, right? And, and I guess a fairly, uh, a spectator with good proximity. Um, I, I think Liz was probably in some respects, a catalyst for some of the issues, but the issues were really Randy's, Randy had a desire to be completely in control of his situation. And probably, you know, I didn't hang out with Randy a lot personally. I mean, I went down to his condo. We hung out a couple times and we did some things socially and we took a trip or two together, uh, short ones. Um, but, you know, I, I got to know him towards the end. I got to know him fairly well socially as a person. But I think from a business point of view – and, it, and by the way, before I go on, Randy, when he, when he, you got to know, I'm just going to speak for myself. When I got to know Randy and he and I kind of passed the threshold of just business and me being the guy running the company and him being a top talent, when we actually kind of passed that threshold and became friends, friendlier, um, he was a very relaxed guy to be around when you caught him in his environment. When I first, I remember the first time I went down to his, he had a condo. I think it was in Indian rocks beach, Florida, if I'm not mistaken. 
And I went down and it wasn't about business. I was just, I was going to be in town anyway. He was there and, you know, he, he invited me down. And Randy was a little bit of a recluse. You know, he wasn't a big social animal. You know, Hulk will go out and, you know, he'll walk through Clearwater Beach and he'll be signing autographs on his way to a steakhouse. And, you know, Hulk is like a walking, talking human billboard wherever he goes. Randy was a little bit more uh, reclusive. So when Randy said, hey, brother, you're going to be in town. Why don't you swing by? Here's my address. So I did. And like I said, we didn't have any business to talk about. But I remember the first time I walked into his house, there was such a dramatic difference between Randy Savage in his home and Randy Savage in the arena. The, the Randy Savage in his own home was relaxed. He was chill. You know, he was super friendly. Uh, and, and late, I mean, he was just he was just a completely different person. Uh, when he got to the building, you know, when it was business, it's like he had on his he had on a coat of psychological armor, you know. I mean, he was just his eyes were constantly, you know, he's looking around, he's he's listening to every word, he's trying to read people and trying to, to read into you know what they're saying based on the way they're carrying their body language. And I mean, he was just so intense that way that they they were dramatically two different people. Um, and I don't know why I went off on that fucking tangent, but. There you go. So let's talk about, you know, because one of the things he's got to be concerned about is his spot and the way he will be perceived. And he's got to be a little sensitive about getting a little older. And you sort of reference that you can do the math and you see that what your driver's license says, but you know, when you go from 42 to 62, you don't always feel it. And a lot of your success in that regard has been because of Omega threes, right? Omega threes, fish oil, really just paying attention to, to what you eat, what you drink and knowing your body and knowing what's good for your body. And I'm, I'm a huge supporter, huge supporter of Omega threes and fish oil. People don't realize how good that is for you. And Randy, Randy also, Randy was into uh, nutrition in a big, big way. Well, you've been educating me because clearly I don't know shit about diet, but you've been telling me that you take Omega threes for joint pain, muscle soreness, uh, and it just helps you focus. And you've even mentioned that sometimes before we do the podcast here, you know, you would go ahead and pop an omega three and I don't really know all the cardiovascular benefits, but the idea that it would help you focus was news to me. Well, here's what people fail to spend the time to learn. It's not hard. I mean, you can Google this shit, right? But your brain is an organ. You know, your brain functions just like your, your heart, your liver, your kidneys, all, all your, your organs need um, specific kinds of nutrition, or they function better on specific kinds of nutrition. And omega-3s um, is, a, is a great um, brain food, and it, it's noticeable. I mean, w- w- when I'm using the right products, and I'm not just, you know, taking an omega-3, going down to your local drugstore and picking one up off the shelf. You need to be sure you're using good quality stuff, right? Great ingredients, pharmaceutical grade if you can find it. And I noticed the difference. My, my clarity of thought, my energy, my ability to focus, as you pointed out, is much better when I'm on the right uh, supplements. And, and omega-3s are one of the best. 
And the right supplement that you've been using lately is Omax three ultra pure. You should check this out if you haven't already. And I know you've probably thought, well, I can see that at my local supplement store or drug store, but here's the deal. Those top sellers just don't contain enough omega threes to give you the results you need. And Eric's been using Omax three ultra pure. It's like almost 95% pure omega three fatty acids. It's the highest and purest concentration on the market. And they have a patented way to make it specifically the DHA ration of four to one. Uh, what does that mean for you? It means it's the best stuff around. They even did a freezer test challenge. Basically here's how that works. You freeze any other omega three supplement and it's going to get all cloudy and that's all the filler, but the Omax three soft gel, it remains clear. It's that pure. It's been clinically tested. So it's safe for you and your family. And, I, and Eric, you told me off air, your favorite part about Omax three is there's no fish burps. This is the purest option. And this is going to work for you no matter what your situation is, whether you're an athlete or a student or a busy parent, or even a gamer or a working professional, you need to experience the benefits of the Omax three ultra pure. And you can actually try it right now. Go to omax.com. That's O M A X.com slash 83 weeks. And you're going to get a box of Omax three ultra pure for free with your first purchase. So go try it right now. It's omax.com slash 83 weeks. And you're going to get a free box of Omax three with your first purchase. Uh, that's try Omax. Go ahead it up. Omax.com slash 83 weeks. And it comes with a 60 day money back guarantee. So you've got plenty of time to try it and actually feel the difference. So let's talk a little bit about Randy because he's certainly feeling the difference here because he's got somebody who's at least allowing him the opportunity to talk about coming in and doing some wrestling. You said it was the easiest deal or one of the easiest deals you put together. You guys discuss a dollar amount and you discuss a number of dates and how does Slim Jim slide into the conversation? I'm, I'm going to get to that in just a second, but again, to kind of put this in the right context, just so people can kind of imagine what, what that situation was like for me. Um, Randy, when, when he, I think he made up his mind, you know, when, when he, with Hulk there, you know, he knew he was going to get a, He knew he was going to get a decent payday. He knew that he was kind of in, in a dead end situation that he hated in WWF. I think Randy made up his mind pretty early on in the process that he was going to to, to join WCW. There wasn't a you know a lot of there wasn't a lot of dancing involved, if you know what I mean. But sure. in, in the negotiation, number one, number two, he had. I don't want to say childlike enthusiasm, but. You would have swore this was his first really big opportunity. I mean, the 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 ex, the level of excitement and enthusiasm that he brought to just even to the discussions about what's possible, what's not possible. You know, when he was going to start, who he was going to work with. It was it was not a typical discussion. It was not a typical negotiation. He was so enthusiastic about making the move. Um, that it made it fun, to be honest. As far as Slim Jim, <coughs> Slim Jim had been sponsoring Randy, I believe, in WWF. I mean, Randy brought Slim Jim with him. And 
at while I was negotiating with Randy, I was also negotiating, or I don't want to say negotiating, but I was just I was in discussions with Slim Jim because they wanted they wanted to stick with Randy. They they loved Randy. They didn't necessarily love WWF. They coincidentally they were advertising in WWF because of Randy. But what they really loved and were committed to was Randy, because uh, Randy had spent a lot of time. I believe Slim Jim was based in Greenville, South Carolina, or somewhere. South Carolina, North Carolina, and Randy was spending a lot of time with their marketing people and their promotional people, and he had been for a while, so they loved him. So while I'm negotiating Randy's deal, I'm also discussing slash negotiating um, Slim Jim's relationship with WCW, and the truth is, I think I've talked about this before, Uh, it's been published before, Uh, the Slim Jim deal was... I don't know if it was a hundred percent of Randy's contract or damn close to it, but Slim Jim basically paid for Randy. It didn't really come out of WCW's budget. There was found money. We didn't have any sponsors at that time. And Slim Jim was willing to spend um, upwards of $750,000 for the first year for a series of pay-per-view sponsorships, television product placements, and that type of thing. So for, for WCW, that was found money. It didn't even have to go through Turner ad sales. It went right to our books and didn't get filtered through the myriad of, you know, Turner Broadcasting accounting um, processes where we ended up getting 15% of the money that we actually generated. This money hit our bottom line immediately. So it, that clearly made the deal even more attractive. I got to tell you, when you started talking about the numbers there, I thought about that new nitro book. Um, this is going to sound like a plug, but you really should go check out wcwnitrobook.com. You and I have spoken about this book the last couple of weeks. And even Bruce Pritchard got his hands on a copy when he was at my house and he couldn't put it down. He spent the whole weekend thumbing through it. Talk just a minute about what a great job guy Evans, who is, uh, I guess, a historian and a fan, but also a journalist. And he put together a different view on really the way Turner ran their business. And so when you talked about it, not going to Turner ad sales and it went directly to your bottom line, you know, some of the, the pitfalls you were sort of sidestepping there are addressed in this book. Are they not? Well, they are. And you know, I don't know guy Evans. I've never met him. Um, but I look, I'm, I'm going to try not to, I'm going to try to stay right on the, right on the center line here. Uh, because everybody that listens to this show knows how I feel about people who call themselves journalists but don't exercise any journalistic integrity whatsoever. And so much of, of what has been written about WCW for so many years, you know, the last 20 in particular, has been written by people, I'm not even going to name names. I'm going to try to stay right down the middle here. But it's been written by people that didn't really interview any principals, didn't really bother or take the time or put in the work. That's what it really boils down to. They didn't put in the work to get the real story. And, and, and instead, these people who have previously written about WCW and the, the rise and the fall and all the editorializing that, were, that was, has been done on a weekly basis for the last however many years – all relied on second, third, and fourth-hand information from what I refer to as stooges or snitches, and basically disgruntled people that would feed 
information that was not true. These people, and sometimes they were, you know, mid-card wrestlers or people that were trying to get into the business or people that were on the periphery, or in some cases, even people who were, had been in the office for a long time, but were very, very political animals. And they would feed misinformation or distorted information to these individuals who would then repeat it as fact and, and base their editorial on a lot of that information. What Guy Evans has done He's done over 120 interviews, not just with people in the office or some guy who wrestled a dark match, you know, once in center stage that, you know, had a bad impression about somebody or a good impression about somebody. They actually interviewed guys like, you know, Bill Burke, who was the president of TBS, Brad Siegel, you know, Joe Yuva. You and I have done a couple interviews, you know, or a couple shows where we talked about ad sales and, and the issues that I had with ad sales. And I don't know if you recall this, but there's been a couple times when we've had these conversations and I described a certain scenario in 1998 and I refer to this gentleman who is the head of ad sales, who I'm not going to name because he's a very fucking powerful person in, in, in the entertainment industry to this day. Well, that man's name is Joe Yuva. And by the way, he's, he's a monster. In, in, in the world of, of television and entertainment as an executive. And when I say monster, I mean big. He's a, he's, a, he's a smart, brilliant, talented guy. But we didn't see eye to eye at all. And he was, you know, the source of a lot of issues for me. But they actually interviewed Joe Yula, who agreed to interview for the book Talking About Nitro. So when people want to think they know the narrative, it's not the WWE narrative about WCW because nobody had a fucking clue what was going on at WCW from WWF or WWE. And half the time, the information that's been fed to these so-called journalists or dirt sheet writers or whatever they really are has been second, third hand misinformation because those people all had agendas. For the first time, there was a no, – don't get me wrong. There's some shit in that book that I did not enjoy reading about myself. This is not a this is I'm not putting a book over because the book put me over. I'm putting the book over because they actually did the freaking work to to get the stories from the people that were actually there in the room. Not some jagoff wrestler that never stepped foot into the North Tower, that couldn't get into the North Tower to have a meeting about any aspect of the business of the wrestling business. They're talking to the principals the presidents of, of networks, the heads of ad sales, the heads of finance. Dick Cheatham is in the book. Dick Cheatham, you know, was was on the front lines for Turner Finance. He worked for Vicki Miller. These are people that really knew the story. And the amount of work and detail that went into that book is mine. I just got I called you, Conrad. When I read the book, I was reading things that were happening within Turner Broadcasting as it related to WCW while I was there that I didn't even know about. I didn't know about. And I was there. I mean, talking about, you know, people above my level, meetings and decisions and strategies and conversations. And it, it was just fascinating. And I'm not reading it because it's second and third hand information. I'm hearing, you know, an interview from people that were actually involved in a lot of the thought process about WCW, you know, prior to me getting there while I was there. And after I left, it was just fascinating. It's over a hundred interviews in this book with former, uh, TBS and WCW employees. Check it out right now. It's WCW nitro It caught Bruce's attention. 
Eric, is it fair to say in your opinion, this is the most fair or accurate book ever written on WCW? Without question. I mean, it makes the rest of the crap that's been written over the last 20 years. It, it shines a, a, an amazingly bright light on it. Um, and, and again, I, I don't know Guy Evans. If he came to my house right now, you know, carrying a pizza, I'd pay him 20 bucks and thank him. And that would be a, I wouldn't know him, but I'm really grateful to him and whoever he worked with for just taking the time and doing the work because the truth is out there now and it's, it's going to put, you know, certain people are going to walk around realizing that the shit that they've been writing for the last 20 years is exactly that. WCWnitrobook.com. Check it out. Uh, I wanted to circle back now though, to talk about, you know, you mentioned $750,000 from Halloween havoc. Is that roughly the first year contract value for savage that you recall? Yeah. So when you're having a conversation with him, that's obviously a pay raise. Did he feel like he's get, he had been slighted a little bit since obviously WWF was profiting from some of that purchase as well. Right. I mean, when some of that money is rolling in for slim Jim, it's not like it's a direct pass through, which is almost the way you were treating it here. Right. I mean, yes and no. I, I, looking back now, you know, in hindsight, um, if I was Randy, and this, be careful how I say this. I guess if I was Randy's agent, let's let's rewind the tape. I'm Joe Blow. I represent the Macho Man Randy Savage. Randy is a great talent. He brings a lot of name value. His Q factor is high. You know, wrestling fans around the world know who he is. Blah 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 blah. There's a great opportunity with Randy as a key talent here in WCW. And additionally, he's bringing in three quarters of a million dollars worth of revenue. So as Mr. Savage's representative, Mr. Bishop, I propose to you, you know, that Randy should be making somewhere around a million, million two. Because that would recognize his talent value. And would also recognize a percentage of the incremental revenue um, that he's bringing to the table that you won't have unless you bring him. And that would have been that would have been a good argument. That would have been reasonable. What Randy, the position Randy took, um, was he liked the, he liked the number that I gave him, and he didn't look at the Slim Jim money coming to WCW as, well, he should be getting a part of that. A lot of guys would have, but from Randy's perspective, WCW was making a buck. He's making a number that he's very excited about. I'm sure it was a big payday for him, big race for him. But more importantly, the money wasn't the most important thing to Randy. This is what made Randy so unique. The money, money was important. Not going to say it wasn't, but it wasn't the most important. The most important is he was going to get an opportunity. And I think he never said it. He never said anything negative about Vince McMahon or WWF. I mean, he was hot. He, he, he disagreed with Vince about, you know, positioning Randy behind the, the announce booth and, you know, going with the youth movement and all that. He disagreed. He was very vocal and quite articulate about that. But he didn't badmouth anybody. He didn't bury anybody. I think what Randy wanted to do was prove he wanted to prove to himself. He wanted to prove to, to WWF and Vince McMahon. He wanted to prove to us that he was still an A player and he wanted to bring his A game. 
Let's talk about his contract that's been released. Uh, the, the contract details, at least the value, uh, 1996, $743,492. This of course was made public uh, after a lawsuit or for discrimination, but then a huge jump from 96 to 97, he would bring in over 1.9 million in 1997. Why the astronomical jump here? Revenues were going up. Business was going up. You know, and I know it's, it's, it's sometimes hard for me, even when I hear these numbers, and I'm sure it's hard for you as a businessman and, and fans who have never been in the position that we were in to understand. But, you know, when, you, when you're bringing people in, and again, Randy was basically free. Let's start out with that. He, he brought $750,000 to the table with him, and he, and he asked for $750,000. So basically he was free in, in terms of an expense for WCW, if, just for this discussion. All right. And WCW in 94 was not generating a lot of money. I don't recall what our gross revenues were at the end of 94. I would imagine they were somewhere around 40 50 million, but by 96, 97, we were probably in the 200 million category, 150 million category. We were, we had become profitable for the first time in the history of WCW in its relationship with Turner Broadcasting. We, we were in the black in a big way and talent now wanted a, a piece of that. And when I say talent, I mean their management, as well as some of the talent. They wanted to share in that. And it's really no different, I guess, than looking at, you know, the rev share model at WWF, although or WWE, although it's a, it's a more, I guess, sophisticated model. But if you go to a house show and the house show loses money, you don't get bonus. But if you go to a house show and you sell it out and you're at the top of the card – you know, you're going to get a big paycheck as a result. And it's kind of the same thing happened here. So let's talk a little bit about, um, something you wrote in the book. You wrote hurting the WWE wasn't my motivation. I just wanted to make my company better, but you would also continue that, you know, a lot of people didn't always have that opinion. And one of the things that a lot of fans were curious about for all these years is why there was such a lag in the relationship with WWE maybe Vince McMahon himself and macho man, because it feels like he was sort of scrubbed from history for a while, not welcomed right away into the hall of fame, certainly not acknowledged until after he passed. And a lot of people have bought into the silly rumor and innuendo of some sort of falling out with Vince over an inappropriate relationship with a member of the McMahon family. When did you hear that silly rumor? And what did you believe to be the situation between Savage and McMahon? You know, I didn't really hear that rumor until God, long after Randy, you know, joined WCW. And again, Randy never he never buried anybody at at WWF, WWE. <clears throat> he never had a bad thing to say. Uh, it's almost like, you know, that part of his life, that was his life. And he didn't, unlike a lot of guys who kind of constantly referred back to their time at WWF and <clears throat> I'm be careful how I say this, 
because sometimes I speak <clears throat> in shorthand and people hear something different than I really want to say. Um, there were people <clears throat> who had worked for WWF and worked for Vince McMahon who would come to WCW. And of course they would tell me things or relay stories or frame things in such a way as to make me think that they were <clears throat> not, not only not loyal to WWF, but really wanted to, to drive a stake through their heart. You know, they, they would badmouth people. You know, they badmouth Vince McMahon. They badmouth, you know, Kevin Dodd. They badmouth whatever. I mean, I heard that all the time. And I, even though I was young as an executive, I didn't really have that level of experience as an executive. I knew, you know, they're telling me what I wanted to hear, which is not unusual, especially in the wrestling business. They're, it is what it is, right? And I, and I began to filter it out. But for the most part, I, I didn't really pay close attention to it because I didn't believe half of it. I, I knew what was going on. Randy was different. Randy didn't do that. Like I said, he never he never had a negative thing to say. And honestly, the 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 issue between you know his past inappropriate relationship or whatever it was, you know, the first time I heard about it, it was more of a a passing joke, right? somebody taking a shot and the, and the way it was, you know, I, I don't remember where it was. It was on an airplane, I think on the way to somewhere. And the first time I heard about that, cause I remember going, Whoa, get the hell out of here. It can't possibly be true. And, but it was, it was positioned as almost a joke that it wasn't to be taken seriously, a, a rib, if you will. So it, you know, I took notice of it, but I didn't think about it too much. You wrote in your book too, Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan always had a bizarre relationship. Hogan originally brought Randy to my attention and really sold him, but I noticed early on there was an undercurrent of hostility between them. They managed it, keeping it out of view and working together. But as time went on, it gradually became more intense. Randy could be intensely jealous and insecure. He was one of the most paranoid people I've ever met in my life. To this day, I haven't met anyone as intensely paranoid. And I liked Randy. We got along. I had no business problems with him either. He was very much a straight shooter. He never played games and you never had to play games with him. He knew exactly what was coming from him at all times. And I really respected that, but he was always worried about someone being out to get him. Can you give me an example of that? Someone being out to get him because we hear about the paranoia a lot. It is one of the things that people describe as one of his most prominent character traits. Can you think of a time maybe with booking or another talent that maybe he was a little paranoid that he have a situation with say a Kevin Sullivan or another talent, a Ric Flair, maybe. Here's what I, here's what I figured out about Randy early on is the worst possible way to communicate with Randy Savage is through an intermediary. Meaning if, Kevin Sullivan had an idea that he wanted to do creatively. If Kevin gave that to somebody else to tell Randy, an agent, so to speak, or a producer, and that producer went to, to Randy, bad deal. Because immediately, oh, well, yeah, why didn't he come to me with that, brother? What's he, what's he hiding? That kind of thing. You know what I mean? With Randy, if you dealt with it, if you looked him in the eye, this is what I found. Early on, like the first time I met him, 
if you if you kept eye contact with them, the conversation went pretty well. If you allowed yourself to get distracted in the middle of a conversation by looking at your phone or looking around the room, he would he'd read that. I mean, he had an amazing ability to read people. And sometimes he overread them or misread them. And what would happen with Randy, creatively speaking, and what would what would create, what was the catalyst for that, you know, paranoia or get him second guessing and third guessing is when People didn't deal with him directly, myself included. Um, and I learned, you know, early on, I learned the hard way or the fast way. Um, just if I needed something from Randy or if I believed in something I wanted to do, just look him in the eye, maintain eye contact. Don't don't blink. <laughs> just keep looking at him as you're talking, talking through it and it'll be fine. But some some people didn't find that. Uh, is is easily with Randy, and I think sometimes Kevin Sullivan probably had issues with him. And look, a lot of people had issues with Ric Flair. You know, Ric Flair was. We've talked about this before, and you know, Rick, you know better than I do at this point. You know, Rick Rick has always loved to be loved by everybody. Rick didn't want to heat with anybody, and sometimes Rick would put himself in a position while he's avoiding heat and not wanting to be put in a bad situation with people that were his peers, which I completely understand. It's why putting a guy like Ric Flair or Kevin Nash, uh, who's you know a major talent and a booker, is such a fucking horrible idea. But you know that also creates a little distrust because sometimes you're not as honest with the you know someone like Randy as you should be about something you want him to do. And the minute he sensed even just a fragment of oh doubt or indecisiveness in the way you're presenting something, he would seize upon that and think you're trying to pull something over his eyes. So why I think, you know, Randy and Diamond Dallas Page, which when I first heard these guys say they wanted to work together, you know, and and I heard, you know, them lay out what they their vision for what they were going to do. I went, well, this is never going to fucking work. Randy's going to shoot Paige. He'll, he'll just put a bullet in his head before this thing ever gets to, <laughs> before it ever gets to the ring. You know, because Paige had a certain type of personality and Randy had a certain type of personality. What I underestimated and didn't realize is these two guys would just bore holes in each other, you know, staring each other down, working on this thing in a positive way. And they got, they got along fantastically because he was page was a hundred percent transparent and so was randy you know page didn't know how not to be transparent he was obnoxiously transparent he'd tell you shit you didn't want to know and randy liked that and i think that's one of the reasons they work together together so well all right eric we got to take a time out here to tell everybody about starcast on fight if you haven't already what are you waiting for Chicago is the place to be this Labor Day if you're a wrestling fan, but if you can't make it to Chicago, well, the next best thing is to join us on Fight. We've got over 40 hours of content being brought to you on the Pro Wrestling Tees and Edward Jones stages. If you can't make it down to the C2E2 Collector's Corner to meet all your favorite superstars, well, you can see almost all of them on 20 stage shows over four days, over 40 hours of content, something for everybody. The Monday Night War Debate with Bruce Pritchard and Eric Bischoff. The death of WCW panel, where you've got R.D. Reynolds going nose-to-nose with Eric Bischoff. And a supporting cast, guys like Dave Pinzer, of course, Kevin Sullivan, J.J. Dillon. They're all going to be there for both of those, but lots of other fun stuff, too. An NWO reunion show, the roast of Bruce Pritchard, an empty arena retrospective, a War Games retrospective. There's something for everybody at StarCast. 
and you can join in on all the fun right now. It's fight.tv. That's F-I-T-E dot TV forward slash StarCast. And there's two R's in StarCast. Everybody who's anybody is going to be on Buffalo Wild Wings podcast row. Tons of creative folks are going to be there, like the folks from Cultural Council, everybody from Westwood One. Of course, Busted Open is going to be there. This is the place to be. But if you can't make it, it's easy. Go to fight.tv forward slash StarCast and find out how you can join in on all the action. Hit the pre-order button. I'm telling you, this is the wrestling event of the year. It's going down Labor Day weekend in Chicago, and it's put together by wrestling fans for wrestling fans. 40 hours of content, one low price. Check it out. Fight.tv forward slash StarCast. I guess it's important to mention that when you bring him in, it's coming in on the heels of a Halloween havoc. That was probably a bit of a disappointment. Uh, it was Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage. And when the buy rate number comes in, it doesn't exactly meet expectations. How far in advance of the announcement that you guys had worked a deal out with Randy, which would have been early November, 94. Did you actually start working on it? Because it certainly feels like a lot of the journalists at the time would think that this signing was in reaction to a poor buy rate. No, that's not true. Again, you know, second, third hand, fourth hand information or at, at best. And, and probably what those journalists were writing about is just them sitting in their basement in front of their computer, taking a wild ass guess and just making shit up. Uh, it wasn't in a react. There was never a reaction to a poor buy rate to suggest. I mean, just think, just okay. So now you're going to get me fired up. Just all anybody has to do. You could hate my guts if you're listening to this show and you're a big Dave Meltzer fan and you think all I do is you know bury Dave Meltzer. Whatever, have it. Believe whatever the fuck you want to believe. I really don't care. It's not going to change my life. But if you want to just kind of make yourself a little smart for a minute and, and sit back and go, well, wait a minute. The only reason they signed, according to, I'm assuming it was Dave Meltzer, could have been somebody else. The only reason that they signed Randy Savage was because of this piss poor buy rate at Halloween Havoc. Now, if you believe that, or if you wrote that and you believed even a portion of it when you wrote it, and published it, you would have to not understand or even be aware of the fact that Randy Savage came with a $750,000 fucking paycheck that he put on the table when he walked in the door. To be clear, it wasn't written that, um, I mean, he even wrote Dave, the beginnings of the negotiations with Savage preceded the Hogan flair match, but it does feel like. Hey, maybe they knew they needed another money opponent because I think one of the silly stipulations here, even at Halloween Havoc was this was a retirement match and Flair lost. So he's going to go away. And of course that step never stuck, especially in WCW. So of course he's coming back, but I think the thinking is Hogan maybe wanted to go back to what he knew. How much of that do you believe is true that he drew the best WrestleMania buy rate you know, in a long time, a huge numbers at WrestleMania five, it exceeded all expectations and they never really did a singles rematch in the WWF. They did tag matches at SummerSlam and things like that. But as far as them one-on-one, it hadn't been done in a while. And the last time they did it, it was hugely successful. 
And Hogan is the guy who puts you on the phone with him. So some of that of Hogan wants to go back to what he knows makes sense, does it not? I mean, it can if you want it to. I mean, if you want to buy into that theory and if you want to ascribe, not you, but if a reader or a listener wants to, you know, buy into the theory that the only reason that we brought, brought, you know, Randy in was the reaction, the way this was set up, you know, to a poor pay-per-view and feeling like we had to have another big money opponent for Hulk Hogan. And that was it. If you want to believe that, you can't. And you'll probably find a way to justify it by referring to, you know, Hogan going back to what he knows, because that's partially true. Sure. We, we all know that. I've talked about that before. Here's the real reason. The real reason is because we saw growth. From the time we saw, we, we signed Hulk Hogan, we were starting to see positive growth. We were shoring up our expenses. We were watching our financials. We saw indicators that led us to believe that if we kept building our roster and the initial idea when I first came in, you know, to change our brand perception from being the little tiny Southern, you know, me too kind of wrestling company who couldn't even get a free drink at a, at a major licensing and merchandising show or couldn't get anybody at direct TV to really pick up the phone and take our phone calls because our pay-per-view sucked so bad or couldn't book an arena anywhere in the country because everybody knew we couldn't draw the only way we were going to fix those things was by bringing in talent like Hulk Hogan, like Randy Savage. Hulk Hogan worked. Bringing in Hulk Hogan from a business-to-business point of view, not from a Dave Meltzer point of view, okay, not from your average wrestling fan point of view, but from a business-to-business perspective, bringing in Hulk Hogan had a significant impact on WCW's bottom line, and not only the immediate bottom line, but our ability to start talking to people from a business-to-business perspective that we weren't able to talk to, whether it was improving our our pay-per-view positioning, whether it was improving the amount of marketing and support we would get for our pay-per-views, because now all of a sudden our pay-per-view partners believed that with these big names, we could start drawing too, so they were willing to risk more money on our product. Those are all of the reasons why, when Randy became available, it all made sense for all of those reasons. And certainly, having somebody like Hulk or somebody like Randy to work with on the roster with a Hulk Hogan is certainly one of them. But to, for anybody to suggest that it was a reaction to a poor dissipating pay-per-view buy rate is a reflection of their ignorance. Let's talk about, um, the way Vince McMahon finds out because he actually has him advertised for a Madison square garden show at the end of November in 94, and he's going to be a special guest referee. And of course that doesn't happen. And he announces in early November on raw that they couldn't come to terms. And most everybody listening to this has seen that clip before. And then you guys debut him on WCW Saturday night with an interview with Mean Gene Okerlund. And I think this was done at center stage in Atlanta and it's done in a way where you're trying to build intrigue and interest as to what's going to happen when he finally sees Hulk Hogan. And he teases in this promo that he's going to be at Starcade and he wants to see Hulk Hogan, but he's not sure if he's going to slap him or shake his hand. And it feels like this is maybe too late in the game to put him into a match. So that's the next best thing, right? It was, you know, and I watched that interview, uh, yesterday on Patreon, did a watch along and I actually put my iPad, um, 
on camera. So we've literally, you know, with our followers over at Patreon, watched that setup uh, for WC, WCW Saturday Night. And, you know, a couple things that, that I took away seeing that interview again. Um, one, first and foremost, is that Randy did a phenomenal job building anticipation. It wasn't a match. You know, it was a short window, as you pointed out. But, you know, to come into WCW Saturday Night, he got a tremendous crowd reaction um, and cut what I think was probably about a three-minute promo, if not longer, that he completely improved. by the way. There was no script. That was the other great thing I loved about Randy. And Gene was spectacular as well, Gene Oakland. Um, but to go out there for three or four minutes – and talk about, you know, needing Hulk Hogan, and am I going to shake your hand, brother? I'm going to reach my hand out, or I'm going to slap you in the face and spin your head off your shoulders all the way back to Venice Beach, California. It's a fucking great promo. But it did what it, what it should have done, is create the question. This is one of the things, to this day, if, if, if I was ever in a position again creatively, and I learned, you know, I learned so much, especially during the last three or four years at WCW and, you know, year or two at TNA, <coughs> about storytelling. And I learned it not, not so much in WCW, and certainly I didn't learn shit in TNA other than what not to do. But, you know, since about 2003, I have been producing, along with, you know, my, my former partner, Jason Hurry, we've been producing television series creating them not just producing we would create the idea on paper you know reality unscripted stuff and we create the idea and we'd sell it and we'd produce it uh for a variety of television networks whether it's mtv vh1 cmt um nbc uh discovery wgn we we probably produced created and produced um 20 different television series uh, for, for just about every network out there. And what I really learned doing that and kind of marrying it to what I learned in 30 years of, 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 of wrestling is the storytelling process. And some of it we stumbled into, you know, the NWO is a perfect example. Some of it, you know, we got lucky. Some of it we, we didn't get so lucky. But the one thing that to this day, I really believe more than anything is if you can get your audience to ask themselves a question. So when you get done with a promo, like we saw a long winded way, I'm going to get right, right back around to your question. But when you, when you see a promo like Randy cut with mean gene on his debut in WCW on WCW Saturday night, December 3rd, 1994, you can find it on YouTube. Um, you watch that and then you just ask yourself, what did he accomplish? What did, you know, it's a great promo, a lot of energy, big pop, you know, blah, 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 blah. But what did he really accomplish? What he accomplished is he created doubt. He created anticipation, which is a key element in storytelling. People want to know what's going to happen when. And that's what he did. He could have just as easily come out and said, oh, go in and shake your hand and we'll go from there. That would have killed it. Or he could have come out and said, Hulk Hogan, I'm going to smack you right in your head. That would have killed it. But what Randy did so effectively, and it's not even a match, is make people go, holy shit, I'm going to buy this pay-per-view to see what's going to happen when they meet. Because he created doubt. 
And I, I, I just thought that, and again, it's not like we talked about it for 45 minutes or an hour. We didn't have a staff of 15 little 20 year old acne face, snot nosed writers trying to figure out how to cut a wrestling promo. I mean, this is just Randy going, okay, what are we doing? Okay. We're not going to wrestle. Okay. Well, I'm going to make this good. Boom. <laughs> that was, that was it. And it was, I thought it was excellent. I encourage everybody to go look at it. It's, it's the way wrestling promos should be cut. You guys received, uh, some sort of legal letter, uh, probably from McDivitt or certainly on behalf of Titan sports, a few days prior to Savage appearing on Saturday night saying that if he appears on TV, it would be considered breach of his implied agreement with Titan since he wasn't under contract. So that's interesting to me. You're not saying that he's in breach of contract, but he's in breach of an implied agreement. When you, when Turner executives hear that phrase, do they just crumple it up and throw it directly in the trash can? Yeah, that wasn't a big, that was, that, that was a weak shot. You know, if you're going to fire, you know, I'm, I'm, listen, Jerry McDivitt and his firm absolutely destroyed Turner legal in, in their case with WC and they shouldn't have the WCW should have never lost or had to settle with WWF the way that they did because they were, they were, they just didn't fight. They didn't fight as hard. They didn't, they didn't deal with the facts the, the way they should have. And as a result, Jerry McDivitt and his firm crushed Turner broadcasting and, and their litigation with WCW. Um, but this, this salvo was like, it wasn't a shot over the bow. It was like somebody picked up a rock and they found a slingshot and they just thought they'd, Toss it away and see what would happen. All right, Eric, we got to take a time out here to tell everybody about the importance of not driving drunk. You know, it feels like something that uh, nobody talks about anymore, but you should know the risks. Everyone should of driving drunk. You can get in a crash. People can get hurt or even worse. People can get killed. And let's take a moment to look at some of these surprising statistics. Almost 29 people in the U S die every day and some sort of alcohol impaired vehicle crash. That's like a person every 50 minutes, even though drunk driving fatalities have fallen by a third in the last three decades, drunk driving crashes still claim more than 10,000 lives each year. Many people are unaware that driving while high can be just as dangerous in 2015, 42% of drivers who were killed in crashes tested positive for drugs. So it's not so harmless after all, if you're getting behind the wheel, is it? And get this from 2007 to 2015, marijuana use among drivers killed in crashes doubled. The truth is driving while high is deadly. So stop kidding yourself. If you're impaired from either alcohol or drugs, do not get behind the wheel. Uh, if you feel different, you drive different. If you drive high, you get a DUI drive sober or get pulled over. Eric, I think this is an important message and I'm glad we were able to talk about it here today. I do too. And, you know, in, in our business, you know, we laugh and joke about guys having beers and, you know, partying and doing things like that. But, you know, all you have to do, you know, out where I live here in Wyoming, you know, you get a lot of tourists, you get a lot of people that are out here and they're on vacation and, you know, they're, they're going down the highway out in the middle of nowhere at 70 or 75 miles an hour. And all you have to do uh, to get shocked back into reality is stumble across, 
you know, one of those car wrecks and see the devastation that results from people deciding it's okay to have a couple beers and take off down the highway. And, uh, it's, it, it brings you back to reality really quickly. It's just not worth it. And, you know, I love to have a beer or two when the time is right, but it's never right when you're behind the wheel or on a motorcycle. So just don't do it. It's sort of interesting, um, that that's even something they would try. Let's talk about Starcade 94. Uh, what a show this is. I can't wait for us to cover it sometime. It got 8.4% thumbs up based on the reader poll and the wrestling observer. Here is your Starcade main event. Ladies and gentlemen, Hulk Hogan beat Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake. That's it. There's no one else in the match. It was Hulk Hogan versus the butcher. And, uh, I guess we should mention that after the match, Randy does a run in and shakes hands with the faces of fear, which is Kevin Sullivan, the butcher and avalanche. And they all act like they're going to ambush Hogan, but instead he turns on the heels and helps Hogan. And then they shake hands and do the posing routine credits three quarters of a star is what it got in the observer. What'd you think of the way you guys pulled off Starcade 94, specifically with the introduction of Randy Savage at the end? It's fucking horrible. I mean, it's just, you can't defend it. You can't justify it. Fortunately, you know, I went to look at that video because you sent it to me the other day and it's no longer available uh, according to the link that you sent me. Now, I know I could probably go to the WWE network and find it, which I probably will um, sometime when I'm, in the frame of mind for some self-flagellation. Um, but <clears throat> it's fucking horrible. I mean, there's just nothing about it that was good. You can understand, I guess, if I try to pull myself out of it because it's a bad reflection on me, I guess. Um, and I try to forget those things, <laughs> but you can, you can kind of understand the basic story. Hogan and Savage, right? There for a minute, we thought Savage was going to be against Hogan, but no, he's going to be his partner. And we all know that that would eventually, you know, lead to a split somewhere down the line. It's not a, it's not a difficult story to figure out. Anybody, anybody that's been watching wrestling for more than 20 minutes could do it. Um, but the Dungeon of Doom thing, the whole idea of putting together this ridiculous clusterfuck of misfits, um, that weren't believable, that, that didn't have an edge, that were all kind of – the one thing that brought them together was they were all coming together under the mastermind of, you know, the voodoo child Kevin Sullivan, you know, to take out Hulk Hogan for a reason nobody really understood. Uh, it just – it was so nonsensical and cartoonish that um, I'm kind of glad the link didn't work. <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm up for it this weekend. Well, you guys, uh, were anxious to get Randy into the ring. So you debut him on the 6th and 7th of January in Birmingham and Montgomery, Alabama. He's replacing sting on top because sting was tired from a long trip from Japan. Meltzer would write quote, sting only got polite applause each night and the matches were pretty dead. Uh, right away. You guys start putting him on the road and you even start doing lots of house show matches with him. Uh, including a television taping. Uh, and uh, this era of WCW is sort of fascinating because while business is down, you've got such talent on here. You've got Dustin Rhodes, who of course would become gold dust. Sean Paul Levesque, who of course would be triple H. You've got Randy Savage wrestling Arn Anderson, and you've got old stars like Dick Slater there. What, I mean, how did Randy fit in 
in early 95 with this roster? I mean, he fit in well. I'm going to go back to what we started talking about early on in the show. You know, his attitude was so good. And the guys loved Randy. I mean, Randy didn't come. Nobody, you know, when Randy came in, there wasn't a lot of guys walking around, you know, with long faces, kind of complaining and pissing and moaning because we're bringing in a WWF guy. Randy had a lot of respect. There was nobody that didn't respect. Randy had, everybody knew Randy had an amazing work ethic. He was smart. You know, he, he, he'd been in the business a long time. He came up the hard way. He paid his dues. Um, he'd been to the big show. Um, so there was no, there was no resentment or, or lack of chemistry or goodwill with anybody on the roster. So in terms of fitting in, if that's what you mean, you fit in great. Let's talk a little bit about clash of the champions. That's the first big show, January 25th, 1995 it goes down to Caesars palace sports pavilion. It's a sellout. And you know, that's only 3,500 in attendance, 2,300 paid, but still, uh, it's a gate in excess of $60,000. So from a gate standpoint, even 60 grand makes it the biggest clash ever. And your main event is Hogan and Savage taking on Kevin Sullivan and the butcher. And the thing I found interesting about this match is butcher puts Hogan to sleep with the sleeper. And then Savage drops an elbow on Hogan, not to finish him off, but to wake him up. Hogan pops up and makes a comeback. The reviving elbow. How did Savage feel about this? I guess pretty good because he did it. It's just, it <laughs> seems like it shits on the finish a little bit, does it not? It does. It's kind of counterintuitive from a creative point of view. But, he, you know, it's <laughs> not but. What's so interesting now looking back at some of this crazy shit, which this was one of those moments that I would classifies crazy shit for a lot of reasons. Um, but when one of the fun things for me was, let me back up. I'm going to preface this. And I've said this before. I want to say it again. 94, 95. I, you know, I was really uncomfortable in the creative process. I knew what I didn't know. Let's put it that way. I, I tried to surround myself with the best people that I could get my hands on that I believed could have the right answers. And that's not, that's not fading the heat. You know, the, the truth is I knew what I didn't know. I didn't fancy myself as a booker. I was never exposed to the creative process in the AWA at all. Conversely, you know, just in case we have new listeners here, I was not only not exposed to it, I was, um, framed out of it. I mean, I, I was, there was a no fly zone for me. If I would have tried to get anywhere near it, if I would have even asked a question about the creative process or a decision or a storyline, you know, Bergani would have booted me in the ass and shown me the door. So it was an alien world to me in AWA. When I got to WCW, I'd show up on Sunday night. I would do what I needed to do as an announcer, probably Monday, Tuesday, sometimes on Wednesdays. And I get on a plane and I leave. I had nothing at all to do with the creative. Now, I was a fan, like a lot of people listening to this, and I had opinions, but I didn't really understand the process. So by the time I got put into the position of executive producer or even as vice president, I, I, that whole world of creative was alien to me still because I had never really been exposed to it. So <clears throat> I would sit and listen and watch – 
some of the people that I put, you know, whether it was Ric Flair, Kevin Sullivan, Dusty Rhodes, certainly Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage, some of the other talents staying. You know, I'd listen to these guys lay out matches because I wanted to learn. I I knew what I didn't know. And what I didn't know was the detailed process and the psychology of putting things together, right? So this was early in my educational (laughs) journey, if you will, from a creative point of view. And I would sit and listen to Hulk and Randy. And these two guys were like, they were like gasoline and flamethrowers. They'd start out, you know, these conversations would start out. Well, now I'm talking about great ones, okay, fun ones, all right? Not that the end result always turned out great, but in this case, you'd watch these guys laying these things out, and Hulk would, like, throw a gallon of gas on the fire, and then Savage would come back with, you know, another flamethrower. And they would just, they would just try to over-the-top each other. And sometimes it would just get out of hand. It would get crazy. And I think that's probably what happened here is they just started laying this thing out. They'd get excited, you know, working with each other and visualizing how this is all going to work. And all of a sudden, somebody threw out a wacky-ass idea. You know what, brother? You're going to go to sleep, and I'm going to come off the top rope and drop an elbow on your skull, and you're so tough. You're going to wake up. You're going to kick out. They won't expect that. Well, that's true. But a lot of times, even the guys didn't think through the ramifications of moves like that. I mean, it's, we still see it today. It's not unusual today to see silly shit just like that. Um, that is kind of a finish killer or uh, just takes things from the believable to the unbelievable um, with with spots and finishes and things like that. But these guys were, you know, they, they were vulnerable to that kind of high spot itis too. You know, they, they'd get it occasionally. Let's keep the good creative rolling. February 95 brings a super brawl. We get Savage and Sting here teaming up to take on Avalanche and Big Bubba Rogers. Of course, the baby faces get the win. There's a great promo here that you should go out of your way to search. Uh, you can just throw it in your Google machine. Macho Man is not talking. That's a fun promo with Sting and Macho Man here. Macho Man is ruining all the house shows, uh, or almost all of them, especially the really smaller venues, you know, places like Gainesville or Amarillo or Waco. And I guess here at the time, he's got to be having some sort of positive impact on house show business because Hogan's not working the majority or any of these house shows. So he's sort of the headliner by default. Let's talk about uncensored March 19th. Uh, this is a show I can't wait for us to cover in long form sometime, but on this card, we get Randy Savage getting a win over avalanche. And interestingly enough, Ric Flair in drag happens here. Uh, wow. Tell me what you remember about the idea to put together, uh, Savage and flair. Obviously they had a world title match at WrestleMania eight. So fans know about the history, but Ric Flair and drag who booked this shit, Rick. (laughs) (laughs) That's so great. I mean, come on. I mean, you asked the question. He's your future father-in-law. Chat me up. <laughs> what do you think about um, the decision to put Flair and Savage together? That's a Flair call. I think it was a Flair call. I think it was. I, I mean, all of us thought it was a great idea. It, it was. It's not a tough call. You got two of the biggest names in the business. They have history. They've got legacy with the audience. They know the story. 
um, how could you not put them together? Even if it's put them together to split them up um, from a storytelling perspective, um, yeah, you had to go with that. Are you kidding me? And you knew, or at least at that point, you know, I believe 100% that you're going to get an amazing product out of it. Are you kidding me? Ric Flair and his ability to not only work magic in the ring, but what he could do with a microphone when he was properly motivated. Uh, Randy Savage, same thing. Um, it had all the potential in the world. Kevin Sullivan has gone on record as saying that Hulk really wanted to have a monster factory and he wanted guys that he could trust is the decision to pair Randy with so many former WWF talents, a Hogan Hogan's influence or a savages call. I ask because like clash of the champions, they're in there with the booker, Kevin Sullivan and the butcher, the old Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake, super brawl. He's in there with avalanche, the old earthquake and the old big boss man. And then even, you know, at uncensored, he's back in there again with the old earthquake and he's going to be feuding now with Ric Flair. Again, someone he knows from the WWF. Is that based on Hogan's influence to appease Savage or is that just who you had at the time? And so it's both, um, Hulk did make, you know, going back to when Hulk, you know, came into WCW, I mean, one of the things once we got past all the, the – and I know we're talking about Randy here, but I want to make sure I do a good job answering that question. Once we got – Hulk and I got past all of the, the niceties and the informal part of the process of, of negotiating a deal, one of the things that became abundantly clear was that Hulk didn't trust a lot of people in WCW. He knew that he'd have – he told me that flat out. We still joke about it to this day. I talked to him last night, as a matter of fact, and we referenced something that was going on. And, and he said, I told you, brother, you work with me, you're going to get heat. And, and he knew that he'd have heat coming in, and he didn't want to deal with it. That's why Ric Flair was so instrumental in getting Hulk Hogan into WCW, because Hulk knew that no matter what, he could have a great match and he could trust Ric Flair. And if Ric Flair was booking and he was working with Rick, Hulk felt comfortable. Now, <clears throat> to this, to your question, you know, that concern continued. You know, Hulk did, Hulk, it, based on his past experience, <clears throat> and it's easy to look back now and be critical of it, but, you know, in 94, 95, we're, we're talking only three or four or five years previous, Hulk was tearing down the house with some of the names that you mentioned, not necessarily Brutus, but you know, he was, he was, he was doing great money with some of those names. So in his mind at that time in context, he believed that he could do it or at least do well enough to justify it again. Not only that from a business point of view, but he did trust those guys. You know, Hulk, Hulk was, you know, when he got to WCW in 94, you know, even with Randy because of the nature of his personality, they wanted to be in there with guys that would make them look as good as possible, that they could, that they did trust. Not only trust from a, uh, an integrity perspective, but trust from a, from, from a physical perspective that, you know, it would be a good dance. You don't, you don't want to go on dancing with the stars with a partner that you're not confident is, is not going to two-step with you and make you look as good as you can look. And some of those choices that you just mentioned um, were probably, you know, a result of that. 
Let's talk about Slamboree 1995. Here we've got Hulk Hogan and Randy Savage beating Ric Flair and Vader. Uh, the match gets a star and three quarters. Uh, I feel like we should mention here that we've got Angelo Poffo here involved in the angle. Tell me in the world, how in the world Angelo Poffo winds up on a WCW pay-per-view and there's physicality here. I mean, I think he's like 70. Randy was pretty insistent upon that. You know, Randy, you know, to the day he died was so passionately loyal to his family, his mother, his father, and his brother, um, that when the opportunity came about to interject his dad, it didn't make any sense. It wasn't something I was excited about to him, but it was an accommodation. So it looks like the, the newsletters would report after this quote, the Randy Savage heel turn is now scheduled for the spring of 96. Now, of course, we're not actually going to see that the way we think we will. A heel turn will happen eventually, but at this point were you guys sort of eyeing Randy Savage and Hulk Hogan at Starcade for 1996, do you think? Yeah, we were. I mean, that was, you know, bringing Randy in and, and teaming him up with Hulk, as I said, you know, 40 minutes ago or so, you know, the idea was originally to split them up. That's why you bring two guys in. Am I going to shake his hand? I'm going to slap his face. Well, he shook his hand. Wow, they're friends. Well, eventually you get, if you're going to tell a good story at some point, you know, with that talent, there's going to have to be an element of betrayal. Somebody's going to have to screw somebody. And that was the intent. And that was generally the plan of the art. Let's talk about um, the way the relationship was changing a little bit, because it feels like some of the boys at this point who were there sort of pre Hogan, pre Savage may have been a little upset. Uh, Steve Austin has gone on record as saying that he was upset with what he called Hogan cronyism. And he had a meeting with you at center stage in May of that year to sort of work through everything was Randy Savage discussed there. Because I think you guys, uh, had Randy Savage beat him fairly quickly in a match on TV in this era was Austin sort of a burr in your saddle, or do you feel like he had a, um, a valid point and you just sort of had to acquiesce to the bigger star? It wasn't really as much about acquiescing to the bigger star. I mean, that, that makes it a personal kind of issue. It was really about recognizing what was happening to the business on the business side of the equation. All of our indicators were looking up. Things were pointing in the right direction based on the direction that we were going. Even though some of those ideas, some of those matches were horseshit, were bad choices, bad decisions, overall, if you just step back and kind of looked at the macro of what was going on in WCW, purely from a financial point of view, if you worked in Turner Finance, you would go, hmm, these guys are doing it right. Saving money. Increasing revenue, bigger sponsors, opportunities we've never had before, better positioning. Things, things are good. So 
from a wrestler's point of view, from Steve, and I do remember the conversation, by the way. I remember also a, a small element to that conversation that I'm not sure Steve Austin will remember. And probably the next time he sees me, he's going to kick me in the balls for bringing it up. But I'm going to do it anyway at the end of this. Um, I do remember the conversation. And there was, I don't want to say resentment, because again, that makes it sound personal. But there was an awareness with a lot of talent, previous, you know, talent that was there prior to, to Randy and Hulk coming in, that things were changing. Um, and, and guys that were friends of Hogan uh, were being positioned uh, more favorably than some of the guys who weren't friends of Hogan or were WCW pre-Hulk Hogan, Randy Savage. It was obvious to them. And, and Steve was one of those guys. And he was... Um, you know, he wasn't in this particular meeting and it wasn't long. It was like a five minute conversation. Um, and I remember it because I think it was one of the last face to face conversations that, that Steve and I had about business. Um, he, he came to me and he, again, because Steve and I are good friends and I, and I really, you know, First of all, I respect all of them, and I like him a lot. Secondly, I want to I want to try to relay this as accurately as I can. Steve caught me coming out of one of the dressing rooms, and center stage was really, really small. You know, you got sixty or eighty, you know, wrestlers there, whatever it was, forty or fifty wrestlers. You've got twenty-five or thirty production people running around. You've got office people running around, and the rooms are all the size of you know, janitorial closets. So it was a really, really, there was no place to go sit and have a conversation, uh, really. So uh, Steve caught me coming out of one of the, the smaller dressing rooms and pulled me aside and started to have a conversation about, you know, his role, you know, what, what's, what's going on with him. And, you know, some of it had to do with, you know, a lot of the guys that we were using that were, as I refer to, friends of Hogan's. Um, but Steve also had a suggestion. Steve, if you don't remember this, I'm sorry. <laughs> but Steve also said, okay, well, why don't, because he was frustrated. He wanted, you know, he saw what was going on. And look, the, even though the talent didn't know anything about the business of the wrestling business, they knew about the, you know, their part of it. They knew what, they knew what was going on in the ring and, you know, crowd reactions and so forth. But they weren't exposed to the business side of the equation the way the rest of us were. But they could still see the handwriting on the wall. You know, the information was getting out. How shows were doing a little bit better. As I said, without beating it to death, all indications were good. And Steve wanted to be a part of that. And that's when he came to me and he said, you know, he, he had an idea. He wanted to work with Hogan. I said, great. What's your idea? He goes, I'm going to, we find out that I'm his long lost brother. And remember at the time, Steve had, Steve and Hulk had about the same hair. <laughs> and the same male pattern baldness going on. So that, you know, that was the beginning. It's not, I'm not making light of the idea. It could have, hang on, I guess. hang on, hang on. You're being serious right now? No, I'm not. Yeah. I'm not kidding. No, I'm not kidding. Yes. I'm being serious. The pitch was Steve Austin could be the long lost brother. Yeah. Wow. That was, that was the, pr no, we didn't get, look, it could have been a phenomenal idea had we sat down 
and Steve detailed it and laid out an arc, there could have been an amazing story there. I mean, it sounds a little, you know, ridiculous, just the way I'm laying it out to you right now, because there was no depth to it. There was no story to it. There was no beats to it. There was no twists and turns to it. It was just, okay, I got an idea. Here's, here's basically it. I'm Hulk Hogan's long lost brother. So, you know, because we didn't have time to sit down and talk about it. Um, and at least, you know, Steve was offering it up. He wasn't just bitching and moaning to his credit. He wasn't being a, a dick. He was looking for a way to integrate himself into that, that, that category with Hulk. He wanted to work with Terry and, and he only had like two minutes to pitch his idea. So as ridiculous as I'm guessing you think that idea sounds, and maybe it was, and maybe he didn't have any depth to it beyond that. I don't know. We never followed up on the conversation. Um, but yeah, he, 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 his idea was to work with Hulk and try to work himself into that, that category by being Hulk Hogan's long-lost brother. Steve, I'm fucking sorry, bro. <sighs> I will buy the beer next, next time, I promise. Let's get to the great American bash. Uh, this one gets a 42% thumbs up that year. And Ric Flair takes on Randy Savage here and Flair gets the win. It's a four-star match. Great reviews, uh, from Dave Meltzer. He even goes so far as to say anyone who says Flair is washed up as a worker can eat it as a draw. Maybe another story. It's been years since Savage has put out like this. Basically, this was everything you would have expected from a match between these two in their primes. What do you remember about this match? We're going to talk about the fallout from it, but this match as it, as it was, is still a match that people talk about as one of their best. It was. And as we discussed a few moments ago, you know, on paper, Randy Savage, Hulk Hogan, how could you not bet on that? How could you not bet on that? Now, even I guess more clearly, if you knew Randy Savage and you knew Ric Flair on a personal level and how they, what drove them, you would bet everything you could possibly beg Bauer or steal on that match. And they over-delivered. They did because of who they are, who they were at that time. Randy had a ton to prove. And so did Rick. You know, Rick had been, you know, Rick was dealing with, and this will be a topic for another show, I'm, I'm sure. But, man, I remember the first time I ever talked about a retirement match to Ric Flair. Uh, I mean, I would have had an easier time trying to talk him out of his former wife. Well, especially at that time. That would have been pretty easy, I think. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, that's not a good analogy whatsoever. He'd be, yeah, take her. Cleo, come here. Cleo, Eric wants to talk to you. <laughs> Um, but Rick, man, you, you mentioned retirement in front of Rick, especially if it was in a match where he was going to retire. Holy shit. I guess he, he, he came unglued. I guess we should mention there the wife you're referring to is his second wife, Beth, but his nickname for her was Cleopatra. And that nickname was given to her by Arn Anderson. So Cleo is the nickname for Beth. Uh, July 17th observer would write this flair who will remain in the company, but no longer a part of the booking committee. Uh, that was a lot of the reason, but don't rule out other factors, including Randy Savage still being upset at the great American bash. Not necessarily that he lost via pinfall, but that the loss was done without outside interference, which was the original plan. 
Can you speak to that? Because you guys do do a rematch, uh, at bash of the beach 95, which was the outdoor show and Savage gets a pin there. The theme here, of course, is it's outdoors and it's a lumberjack match. And they, they sort of teased that Elizabeth was going to be a part of that, but she winds up not being, it's not nearly as well received as the first match. It only gets two and three quarter stars. And we're just a month out from a four star match between the two. Was there sort of some hurt feelings on Randy's side about the finish the first time? And what'd you think of the rematch at Bash of the Beach? There was none that I was aware of. Randy was Randy and this is and again I'm not I'm not I'm not, I'm not gonna go off on dirt sheet writers. But this is where so much of the false narrative you know, and I guess look. Here's the good news in the wrestling business. Thank God that wrestling fans are probably more interested in what goes on behind the scenes in the wrestling business than they are in many cases what goes on on television. Otherwise, you and I wouldn't be doing this podcast. Right. We wouldn't be the number probably two rated podcasts, wrestling podcasts in the world right now, if that were the case, right? True story. Because our our fans are. Wrestling fans are, I mean, and not only are they interested in what goes on behind the scenes, they're interested in what went on behind the scenes 20 fucking years ago. So that's a good thing, and I'm grateful for it. I really am. Um, that being said, sometimes that passion and energy kind of creates a distorted view of the world because it, it starts – you know, somebody will say something in a chat room or somebody will write something in a dirt sheet uh, or somebody will say something in a bar to one of their friends, whatever. And all of a sudden, these these stories start emerging about what was going on backstage and who had heat with who and who was upset about a finish that, that aren't true, that never were true. But they've, they've manifest now in the history and the legacy of some of the top talent in the world. In, in this case, I will say Randy Savage never had a problem doing a job. Randy, Randy's only deal was it had to make sense. And sometimes Randy's idea of sense didn't make any sense. But as, as you know, we talked about in the, in the finish or in the, uh, the sequence with Hogan where he dropped an elbow on him and woke him up. Um, that was just his intensity, right? That was just kind of sometimes going over the top of over the top. But if you laid out a good finish, particularly in a match like Flair and Hogan, Randy knew intuitively fans want to see a finish, especially if it's going to lead to something else. Um, Randy didn't have a problem with that. And believe me, if Randy would have had a problem with it, all, all respect to Rick, there would have been a compromise. Rick would have, by, by the way, Rick would have wanted to compromise if Randy would have had a problem with it. That would have been Rick's decision to compromise if Randy had a problem with it. You guys do another clash in early August. This time we've got Hulk Hogan beating Kamala and uh, Savage is doing commentary for this one. And there's a big schmoz at the end. Of course, we're going to see, uh, Sullivan and the Zodiac and shark eventually sting and Randy Savage make the return. So it looks like you're building towards some sort of dungeon of doom versus the mega maniacs. And the partnership with Sting continues. Even on a set of tapings at center stage, we see Sting and Savage beat the Blue Bloods, and Sting is dressed up, even wearing the face paint. So he's sort of um, 
uh, color coordinates with Savage and Savage is wearing the face paint as well. So they're sort of going all in here, having tons of tag matches and, and matches together, whether it's on TV or house shows, what was the relationship like between sting and Savage? It was very solid, very, very solid. First of all, sting was so easy in that regard. He sting would question because he really wanted to understand. Sometimes we'd come to him with things that made no sense. When I say we, I mean, whether it was Ric Flair or Kevin Sullivan or, or me or anybody else, you know, he'd, he'd question you and, you know, he'd kind of curl his, his forehead would kind of curl up and he'd look at you under, you know, lower his head and kind of look at you underneath his eyelids and kind of go, what the fuck? He'd never say that, but that was the look he'd have on his face. But once you kind of laid it out to him, he was all in. He, he just, he, he's a very gracious and generous performer. He just wanted to make sure he understood. And I think with Randy, Sting understood that he was in there with a guy that, you know, he was elevating himself. You know, it wasn't like he was diluting his character by putting over Randy's and Randy conversely was putting over Sting's. I mean, how, how could you not get excited about that? If you're Sting and you've, you know, you've lived in WCW, you've lived in the shadows of WWF, you've been considered a second class citizen, not only by the people you work for, Turner Broadcasting, but by the wrestling fans as well, with the with the exception of a small, you know, core loyal audience, you know, in in, in the South, you know, TBS audience. So for Sting to have an opportunity to work with somebody on Savage's level that was equally as generous, and 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 you know, hoping to elevate, you know, themselves and each other simultaneously, how how could Sting not be excited about that? He didn't, and he was. What was the uh, reaction to Luger coming back? Luger, of course, had been in the WWF and Savage had obviously worked with him there. A lot of people would say that Luger wasn't, um, the best person to work with the best coworker. Do you remember having any sort of conversation with Savage or hearing any sort of whispers about Savage and Luger having some sort of iffy relationship at all? I'll go back to what I said. This is one of the things that I admire about Randy, you know, People ask me about him and what he was like. And there, there's a lot. Um, first and foremost, I love the way he treated my kids. You know, and that's how I judge people for the most part. It's, it's not how how they necessarily, what they do, what they say. Well, I judge them by what they do. But not so much what they say or what my perception of them is, but how they treat people in, individually. And I, I watch Randy. And there were times when, you know, down at Disney or at a pay-per-view or on the road, Sturgis, whatever. And my kids were almost always around, you know, in the summertime when they weren't in school. And there were times that I'd be, you know, in a distance. I'd be watching Randy, you know, interacting with my kids. And he, he wouldn't see me. He didn't know I was, you know, 25 yards away across the room and catering watching. But I watched how he treated my kids. And he, he was genuine. He wasn't he wasn't doing it because they were my kids. He was just genuinely a good human being, and he treated kids well. He treated a lot of people really well. Um, the other thing that I, I, I admired uh, about Randy, one of the things is just, as we talked about a little over, his directness. He was just so easy to communicate with. He didn't have to read between 
and he lies. I'm sorry, I need you to help me out. I can't remember the first part of the question. Just about Luger and, and Savage. And uh, when he okay. comes, you talked about how he really got along great with Sting. Did that change with Luger or was it very similar to Sting? No, and I'll, I'll go back to the question. I went off on a tangent about, about Randy and how he treated my kids and other people. The other thing I really liked about Randy is he didn't badmouth people. If Randy had an issue with somebody, he dealt with it directly. He, he didn't. He, you know, he didn't badmouth people. He didn't bury anybody. Not that he never did to me. I, I only know I only know what I know in, in terms of my relationship with Randy. He never had a negative word. He may not have said anything about Luger, and maybe that was Randy's way of uh, dealing with someone that he was uncomfortable with for whatever reason, if indeed he was. But he never, when we brought Lex back to answer your question specifically, um, he never had a negative thing to say. I, I would have never guessed that there was eat between them if there was. Well, I didn't know that there was. I just know he's a, a rather polarizing figure. Of course, we're mentioning him because uh, Nitro is going to go down at the debut, and um, that's where we see Luger return. Uh, the upfronts or the press conference, as it were, when you guys are announcing Nitro. Flair's not there. Savage is. There's got to be some sort of licensing strategy because you've talked a lot about the business of the wrestling business. Given his association with Slim Jim, it's a no-brainer to have Savage represent you at that. Is it not? Of course it is. And, it, and it's also... And I, can, I could understand, and I don't know. You know, Rick and I have never talked about this, and maybe you have with him. I, I don't know. Um, I don't recall Rick taking exception to that. He didn't care. Um, but I, I do know that for me, for Turner Broadcasting, for TNT, Brad Siegel, um, we had to let people know that we weren't just the same old WCW. No disrespect at all to Ric Flair, to Arn Anderson, to Sting, you know, to, to whoever was helping to keep WCW even alive during all that time up until Nitro. But the hard, true reality was that we needed to convince advertisers uh, and cable systems that we're the fucking real deal. And Randy and Hulk were, you know, a means to that end. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, what we're building towards. And I, and I think everybody knows that we're building towards the big world war three discussion. It's our number one requested topic, but on our way there, we're sort of priming the pump a little bit. Halloween havoc. We see Randy Savage pin the Zodiac, which is Brutus, the fucking barber beefcake in a minute and 30 seconds. And this happens because Zodiac was subbing for Kamala who decided to quit the promotion rather than do a job here. Uh, and this is, um, notable because a fan hops over the guardrail and referee, uh, Randy Anderson tries to hold him back. Savage immediately takes his match outside of the ring to get as far away from this real interaction as he can and keep it off the cameras. The match is a dud. What do you remember about Kamala? I mean, is this true? Kamala refused to lose to the macho man. So he just fucking quit. I don't think that's true. I don't think that's true at all. I I think there were other circumstances involved in that. Um, Kamala had travel issues. Kamala was not in great health right. at the time. 
Um, there were there were other extenuating circumstances. The length of his contract wasn't uh, one that he was hoping for. There was no real guarantee in anything for him. Um, I think there was a, there were a lot of other things, but you know, not doing a job for Randy Savage is not not one of them. It's also the famous night here, Halloween Havoc 95, which I can't wait for us to talk about where Hogan loses the belt to the giant. Uh, but we're going to set up, of course, the big show world war three, 1995. It gets a, an overwhelming thumbs up 69.3%. And this is everybody in one match. And I'm sure we'll talk about this at long form some other time, but the result is Randy Savage becomes the world war three winner and the world champion. And it goes down on November 26th in Virginia. Why was the decision made to put Savage over here earlier in the night? He has a singles match where Luger beats him, but then he comes back, wins the battle Royal, and now he's the champ. And this is talked about a lot because of the Hogan involvement. What do you remember about world war three and the decision to put the belt onto Randy Savage here? Randy had been with us now for almost two years by that point. Well, it was a year. I mean, he came in in November of 94, oh, so we're one, right. we're one year okay. later. Okay, so he'd been with us about a year at that point, um, just under a year. Um, and it was time. I mean, he was a top player. I mean, it's not a really – it shouldn't be talked about too much. Why wouldn't you put a belt on a guy like Randy Savage? Well, I think the idea is that Hogan wasn't eliminated. And so as a reminder here, uh, what happens is – uh, Hogan's dumping a bunch of dudes out like three at a time. And then he's pulled under the bottom rope by the giant and the cameras on Hogan Savage. Who's not on camera is dumping gang over. And before anybody really knows what's going on, Savage is announced as the champion and Meltzer would write Hogan complained that he never went over the top, but was booed like crazy for doing so. Hogan even went to the crowd, which in an earlier interview, booed him out of the building. and was chanting Hogan sucks at him. So loud they had to turn the crowd noise down during the interview and asked to tell Savage and the ref that he'd gone under the bottom rope and not over the top rope. And the crowd, for the most part, is reacting by screaming no at him. Uh, of course, Meltzer would put it over, saying the Battle Royal was said to be good live on television, but with three rings, three pictures, three announcing teams, the first 15 minutes feel like we're watching test patterns. And I think a lot of people would agree that as a live event, a spectacle, it's easy. I mean, it's fun, but on TV, it does present a certain set of challenges, but the idea here is it's supposed to be Savage's crowning moment, but instead Hogan saying, I didn't go over the top brother. What's the thinking here? Probably trying to build story, laying the foundation for a story in the future. Be my guess. You know, I'd have to ask him, honestly, sure. I, I certainly didn't pick his brains when, when, when it was over with, but, you know, hearing it laid out the way you're laying it out, knowing Hulk the way I, I know I'm now new and then, um, it's probably one of those improvisational things he did to kind of at least lay the seed or lay the foundation for something in the future so that it could go somewhere. The show goes off the air, uh, with these two guys celebrating because as Bruce would tell us, Hogan must pose. So there you go. It's Hogan's uh, or Savage's rather first year in WCW. We talked a lot about the contract and uh, the way it was signed and immediately putting him into, you know, comfortable matches with old opponents, his big feud. They got a four-star match with Ric Flair. 
And then a rather interesting finish. And I'm sure we'll cover that pay-per-view some other time. Let's take some questions. We asked you on Twitter at 83 weeks. If you wanted to ask Eric a question and we're going to rapid fire some of these, Eric, are you ready? Ready? Josh Kuhn wants to know where does macho man rank all time in Eric Bischoff's opinion? One of the top three. Rusty wants to know, did Savage and Liz ever appear as if they would rekindle their romance? No, they never did. And I'm, you know, it's interesting. We didn't really cover that much in the show and I'm going to take the opportunity to do it now. Um, Randy was really, Randy was a big advocate to bring Liz in and, you know, going back to some of your early questions about, you know, my perception of Randy and concerns I may have had about Randy based on what I had heard earlier. Um, I was at this point, you know, when, when Randy wanted to bring Liz in, I was a little nervous about it because I, the history, you know, bringing in your ex-wife, you know, knowing that Randy had a reputation for being insanely jealous um, and overprotective, uh, probably the better way to say it, really, I really questioned my judgment in making that decision. But I will say that Randy was 100% professional and he was very protective of Liz. He... He was creatively, you know, he, he didn't demand that she be treated like a queen or special or anything like that. But he was always, he always kept an eye out for Liz. He was always wanted to be in the loop on what she was doing creatively because he felt he still loved her. You know, he didn't love her in the same way um, as he did when they were married. But I think the relationship between Randy and, and Liz was still very strong for both of them. Um, but when we brought Liz in, it was a completely 100% professional, didn't create any issues. And that's that's not an easy thing to do, especially in a wrestling environment, especially with your ex-wife, especially given you know the nature of their relationship and all the things that they had been through. Jill wants to know, was it awkward with Savage and Elizabeth working together? And, and, and I don't mean necessarily for them, but for everyone else. Not really. And, and again, just following up what I just said. Randy was so professional, and so was Liv, by the way, that you know everybody knew. You know everybody. You know, especially in the beginning, I think it's fair to say people were probably cautious and a little concerned that the old Randy would, you know, reveal himself and you know kind of go over the top, being overprotective and all of that. But it be, be, again, because he was so professional, and so was she. You know, she was married. I think at the time she had already. She was either married or engaged to a guy down in Miami when I hired her. So that relationship romantically was clearly over and Randy handled it professionally. So I think after, you know, Liz was in for two or three weeks, everybody realized that, you know, the crazy Randy, you know, overprotective, jealous Randy of the past is, he's not here anymore. And everybody just accepted her for her and, and didn't think too much about it anymore. Austin has a great question. What's the biggest lesson you learned business or personal from the macho man? Mm, intensity is a very good thing. And sometimes people think you're, you, you, perhaps you're too intense or you're too passionate to the point of, of being almost obnoxious. Um, but that's not true. I don't think there's, there should ever be any limit on your intensity or your passion for something that you believe in. And that's, that to me is probably embodies or personifies Randy Savage more than anything else I could say. 
Here's a fun question. Uh, and this one comes to us from Jeremy. If Hogan was the highest paid, was Savage number two? I don't think so. You know, I, I'd have to go back and, and try to dig up some information. I certainly don't recall everybody's salaries off the top of my freaking head. And I know there's going to be listeners out there that are give me the I don't recall bullshit. But I would say Randy, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, Bill Goldberg. I would say probably Bill Goldberg was number two. No, no. I, I, we're talking about 95. So let me, oh, let me, let me five, circle back. 95. 95. Um... He's got to be right. I mean, it's got to be him or Sting. No, no, Sting. Sting was at seven fifty, I believe. Where was Flair? Flair's in the neighborhood, right? Flair's in the neighborhood, maybe just under. So I I think, I think, I think Sting and and Randy were probably neck and neck. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, this is a question we got a lot. Why not have? a macho man debut similar to the way Hulk Hogan was debuted. There was a bigger reception for Hulk Hogan. I mean, a literal ticker tape parade. This comes to us from Tom. Why not a bigger one here for macho man? You know, in in fairness, uh, there probably should have been, it was probably a mistake not to, we probably left a little bit of equity on the table or in the locker room, I should say backstage by not doing that. Um, especially debuting him in WCW, you know, in a small you know center stage where there's maybe 350 people. And again, I watched that yesterday and we made it look as good as you could possibly make it look. Um, actually it looked pretty great <laughs> even by today's standards for such a small arena, particularly one configured the way that one was with such a steep, seating uh configuration and all that but um had we you know brought him out with a little bit more pomp and circumstance no pun intended with with deference to his music i think we probably could have gotten a little bit more equity out of it if not from the wrestling audience because the wrestling audience didn't need it but i think we probably could have done a better job in fairness uh by positioning him even more so to advertisers and cable, you know, outlets and, and pay-per-view companies and things like that. It's a good point. Matt De La Rosa wants to know Savage was known for his work outside of the ring with children and other charities. Did this continue during his time with WCW? Yeah, he did. And Randy did a lot of things that we didn't, we didn't know about. Randy was a good dude, man. He wasn't just doing it for the PR. He was a good dude. Andrew wants to know Lanny's deal. What's up with that? And of course, what Andrew's referencing is Lanny Poffo famously had a deal for a long time with WCW. Was that addressed in 95 when he first came over or did Lanny's deal come later? Lanny's deal came later. And, you know, I like, I like Lanny. I see Lanny four or five times a year when we do independent shows and comic cons and things like that. And I didn't really know Lanny. I knew of him, but I didn't know him before we brought him in. But, Going back to Randy's loyalty and commitment to family, when we renegotiated Randy's – not renegotiated, but when we negotiated Randy's second contract, um, Randy wanted Lanny to come in, thinking about a buck fifty or a buck seventy-five. And I just couldn't do it. I couldn't justify it. And we, we went back and forth, and it wasn't – you know, it didn't get ugly. 
there were no threats made. There was none of that. But it 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 was Randy Savage intense. Um, and I finally I just I said, Randy, I, I can't. There's just I can't do that. So Randy said, okay, we've already agreed on my number. Reduce my number by X amount to cover Lanny's. So Randy paid Lanny's deal. Wow. There you go. Dropping some knowledge here today. Good that question. Was- Another question here from Matt. He's bringing the noise here. Uh, Poffo was inducted into the WCW hall of fame this year. Why did the WCW hall of fame seem to die on the vine after this? He's referencing 1995. So you only did it a couple of years here and then it's gone. Uh, why did you pack it up? Uh, I think one of the biggest challenges that we had probably, probably the core reason was we didn't have, you know, we were, if you look at some of the last, um, hall of fames that we did, we were digging pretty deep trying to find people, you know, that would come in and be a part of that. Um, we were relying upon people that had no real direct relationship with WCW. And I know the WWE can do that. You know, they get away with the same thing now because they're WWE and they're bigger and, you know, they bought up a lot of territory. So whether, you know, they, they, they can induct somebody like sting, even though sting never really worked for WWE, um, they can induct them because now they own the WCW library and all that kind of shit. Well, we, we couldn't get away with that. So after the first couple of years, we're sitting around the room going, okay, who are we going to duck to the Hall of Fame? Well, the only people were, that would do it or made any kind of sense were people that nobody else knew for the most part. So the, the bench of, you know, Hall of Famers that we could attract was, was already getting pretty thin. I don't think there was anybody that was really behind the idea, myself included, um, enough to sustain it when it hit those types of challenges. So it was easier to just let it go away than it was to try to fix it. Uh, talk to me a little bit about, um, and, and we get this a lot kicks, kick smart, my heart. Can you clear up the rumor and innuendo that flair wouldn't job to macho man and drop the title, which ultimately cost him his job as the booker. There's this conspiracy theory that flair had a problem doing a job and it feels like he's Law, I mean, that's the way you become 16 time world champion. You lose it a lot, but allegedly he didn't want to lose the, the belt. And that's the reason he lost his job. That makes no sense to me. What say you? None, none whatsoever. Anybody that's worked with Rick, even if you, even if you've only been in the building while Rick was working, I'm talking about backstage. Nope. Nobody that was remotely close to Rick would, I, I don't think would ever accuse him of not wanting to do a job. That's the most ridiculous. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Now, there was a lot of other stuff going on. We've talked about this ad nauseum. Um, the pressure of being a top talent and the booker is ridiculous for the strongest, most in- insanely, intensely well-grounded person that you could imagine. It's, it's unbearable. And for a guy like Rick who is a very emotional guy. He just loves to be loved. He doesn't like confrontations necessarily from a business perspective. Um, To be in that position was just more than he could bear. 
that had everything to do with him not being the booker anymore, not not doing a job. Last one, then we'll get out of here. Hoboken Squat Cobbler, what a name that is, wants to know, was there ever any thought to having Randy get a win over Hogan clean just once? I'm sorry. I was choking on that handle. Could you please give me that one more time? Lots of people want to know why Randy didn't get just one clean win over Hulk Hogan. Oh, I don't know. I don't have an answer to that. Um, it's not like Hogan didn't do jobs. I guess the point is it wasn't a, it wasn't a point of contention. You know, we'll talk about it later, but a lot of people say, that Hogan pushed for warrior to come back because it was a way for him to get his win back. And maybe that, and I, I will talk about that later. Cause I know you want to rant on that, but we'll hold it for that warrior show. That sort of thinking didn't exist for macho man. Fair to say. I'm not sure I understand that. Well, <laughs> so, so Hogan, Hogan beat savage at WrestleMania five. Right. And it was a huge deal. Uh, lots of, I mean, one of the biggest pay-per-views of all time. There's never really a clean win where Savage beats Hogan after that in a singles match without some sort of crazy shenanigans. Okay. That's it. And the question is why, why, why did that happen? You know, I don't know. I can't put myself in Hulk's head or, or certainly can't put myself in Randy's head at that time. I don't know that if it was. My my point was, I don't know that that Macho really cared. I don't think, I mean, I, I, Here's, if I had to guess, and that's what I have to do, I mean, we don't have a, any other choice but to guess trying to answer a question like that. My guess is if there's a logical answer for it, it would be that they both recognized. That's the one thing about guys like Randy and, and – now I know this for a fact because I, I used to hang with both of them um, at the same time when they were getting along. Um they both knew that they could probably extend their careers, you know, five or 10 years, just based on their ability to continue to tell stories. So if my, my guess is that if I had to, if I had to, they probably realize, okay, there, there's a big one here where Randy actually beats Hall clean. And then there's a return because that's the way they thought. That's just the way their brains work. That's the way they grew up in the business and that, that was to them, that was money in the bank. That would be my guess. My other guess would be give a fuck. <laughs> it's just business. Wasn't necessary. It may be, it may have felt necessary to the audience and to the conspiracy theorists, theorists that are out there, especially the ones that want to, you know, portray Hulk as being really selfish and always protecting himself and, you know, bringing in warriors who didn't have to do a job for Randy, whatever the fucking conspiracy is. Yeah, that makes sense to people that live in that conspiracy world. But I, I would say my first guess, Randy didn't really care. My second guess, maybe they thought about it and talked about it and realized that that, that could be money in the bank down the road. I don't know. Well, there's money in the bank down the road over on Patreon. Go hook it up if you haven't already. It's patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks. You heard Eric talking about calling some uh, fans who bought t-shirts. You can see some of that video on Patreon. You can also do some deep dives and actually watch some of the things that we're covering here on the show. You get the show early, you get it ad free. We've got lots of other perks for you. Check it out. You can get in the game for just a couple bucks a month at patreon.com forward slash 83 weeks. In the meantime, follow us on Twitch as well. If you have Amazon prime. You can actually do that for free. 
Uh, you can Google exactly all the details of how to do it. But if you want more Eric Bischoff content, there's an opportunity for you. It's twitch.tv forward slash 83 weeks. And uh, Eric is on Twitter at eBischoff. You can follow the show at 83 weeks. And you can also vote in our poll right now at 83 weeks on Twitter. We've got a handful of topics up there. You get to get in the driver's seat and decide what we're going to cover next. You voted for the Macho Man here, and we had one heck of a poll. You never know what we might cover next week, but you get to decide. Make it happen right now at 83 weeks on Twitter. We're looking forward to uh, hearing what you have to say. And in the meantime, we'll see you next week right here on 83 Weeks with Eric Bischoff.